Welcome to Volume 5 of Uvula Audio's presentation of Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet. Chapter 9. Repel Invaders The snapper boats came out of the darkness of space, leaving a glowing trail of fire. They were not graceful. Rip could see no beauty in their lines, but to his professional eye there was plenty of deadly efficiency. The Connie fighting craft looked like Three globes strung evenly on a steel tube. The middle globe was larger than the end ones, and it was transparent. From it projected the barrels of two kinds of weapons, explosive and ultrasonic. Five men usually rode in the middle ball. One piloted. The other four were gunners. The end globes were pierced by five large holes. They were blast holes for the rocket exhaust. Unlike the landing boats, Each tube did not have its own fuel supply. One fuel tank served each globe. The pilot could direct the exhaust through any tube or combination of tubes he wished by operating valves that either sealed or opened the vents. The system gave great maneuverability to the boats. By playing on the controls with the skill of an organist, the pilot could shift direction with dazzling speed. Snapper boats used by the Federation operated on the same principle, but they were all of American design and they showed the Americans' love of clean lines. Federation fighter craft were slim and streamlined, even though the streamlining was of no use whatsoever in space. With blast holes at each end, they looked like double-ended needles. The pilot's canopy in the center controlled guns that fired through the front only. Rear guns were handled by a gunner who sat with his back to the pilot. Where Connie's snapper boats carried five men, the Federation boats carried two. The Connie's could fire in any direction, The Federation pilots aimed by pointing the snapper boat itself, as fighter pilots of conventional aircraft had once aimed their guns. Rip watched the boats approach. He was ready to duck inside if they decided to look the asteroid over before landing. He hoped they wouldn't catch sight of his two scouts. He also hoped his nervousness would vanish when the fight started. He knew what to do, at least in theory. He had gone through combat problems on the moon during training, but this was different. This was real. The lives of his men depended on his being right, and he was afraid of making a wrong decision. Sergeant Major Koa, an experienced planeteer with a lot of understanding, came and stood beside him. He said, Guess I'll never get over being jittery while waiting for the fight to start. I was sweating so hard my dehumidifier was humming like a Callistan honey lizard. But it doesn't last long once the shooting begins. I get so busy I forget to be jittery. Before Rip could reply, the snapper boats flashed over the cave, circled the asteroid once, and landed on the dark side close by the bomb craters. The first scout reported, Santos, sir, I'm 50 yards beyond the stakes where we had the first base. The snapper boats landed between the first two craters. There are men coming out of one boat. I count six. Now they're coming out of the other boat, but I can't see very well. The other scout picked up the report, his Swedish accent thick with excitement. I can see them, sir, by Cosmos. There'll be seven of this boat on my side. I'm behind the rock, forty yards to sunward of the second crater. Rip turned up the volume of his communicator. How they armed? Santos, report. One is carrying a pneumatic chatter gun. The rest have nothing in their hands. Peterson, report. No weapons I can see, sir. Koa looked at Rip. They must think the asteroid is clean. 
Otherwise, they'd have more than a chatter gun inside. You could bet they have knives and pistols, too. Rip had been playing with an idea. He tried it on his men. These connies would be useful to us alive, if we could capture them. It was Doust who caught his meaning first. You mean as hostages, sir? That's it. If we could capture them, the Connie cruiser would be helpless. We could use the snapper boat radios to warn the ship that any false move would mean harm to their men. Koa shook his head doubtfully. I'm not sure the Connies worry about their men, sir, but it's worth a try. We can capture some of them if they split up to search the asteroid, but we won't be able to sneak up on them at all. We have an advantage, Rip reminded them. We've been on this asteroid longer. We know our way around, and we're used to spacewalking. They've just come out of deceleration, and they won't have their space legs yet, Santos reported. They're breaking up into groups of two. Three are guarding the snapper bolts. One is the man with the chatter gun. Are their belt lights on? Yes. Then keep out of the beams. Don't let them walk into you. Keep low and keep moving. Stay over on the dark side. We'd better get to the dark side ourselves, Koa warned. He was right, Rip knew. The Connies didn't have far to search before reaching the sun side. Koa, you take Trudeau and Kemp. I'll take Doust and Domenico. Nunez and Bradshaw, stay here to guard the cave. If they arrive in twos, let them get into the cave before you jump them. Bradshaw, how do you feel? I'm all right, Lieutenant. Rip admired the planeteer's nerve. He knew Bradshaw was in pain, because bleeding into high vacuum was always painful. The crack in the Englishman's helmet had let most of the air out, and his own blood pressure had done the rest. He would carry the marks for days. A few more moments, and all the air and all the heat would have been gone, with fatal results. Fortunately, bubbles didn't shatter easily when cracked. To destroy them took a good blow that knocked out a piece. All right, let's travel. Koa, go right. I'll go the other way, and we'll work around the asteroid until we meet. Rip led the way, gliding as rapidly as he could toward the edge of darkness. He called, Santos, any coming in direction of the cave? Two pair, about fifty yards apart. They will be out of my sight in a few seconds. Which meant they would be within sight of Rip and the others. He knew Koa had heard the message, too. Both groups put on more speed and reached the safety of darkness. Get down, Rip ordered. They could still be seen, if silhouetted against the edges of sunlight. Starlight gave a little light, but was too faint to see much. Rip's plan was that the Connies would supply the light needed for an attack. In a few seconds, as Santos had predicted, belt light beams cut sharp paths through the darkness. Rip sized up the possibilities. There were two teams of two men each, and they were getting farther apart with each step. One team was coming almost directly toward them. The other team was slanting away from them and would soon be out of sight behind the thorium crystals in which the cave was located. Fortunately, the Connies were going away from the cave. A Connie from the nearby team swung his beam back and forth, and it cut space over their heads. Rip saw a few low pyramids of thorium a few rocks away. He directed swiftly, Doust, take my boots. Domenico, take Doust's boots. He lay face down on the metal ground until he felt hands grip his boots, and then he asked, All set? Two voices answered, Ready! Rip put his gloves on the ground and pulled himself forward and slightly upward. 
Since there was very little gravity, the action both lifted and pulled him. He slid parallel to the surface and a foot above it, heading for the crystals. Once or twice he reached down and gave another push. It was like swimming, except that only the tips of his gloves touched the ground and there was no resistance of any kind. He felt Douse's grips on his boots, but he couldn't feel the weight of his men. He reached the first crystal and directed, Get behind these rocks and stay down. Feel your way. Use me for a guide. I'll hold on until you're under cover. He gripped the crystal. Come on. Domenico pulled himself along Douse's prone form and then along Rip's. When Domenico had reached the shelter of the crystals, Douse crawled along Rip's body for his guide, passed over him, and reached cover. Rip followed. The belt lights of the two Connies were almost abreast of them. Far to their left, Rip saw another pair of lights. That was a pair he hadn't seen before. We'll wait until they pass, he told his men. Then we'll get up and rush them from behind. They can't hear us coming. Doust, you take the near one. I'll take the far one. Domenico, you help as needed, but concentrate on cutting off their equipment. The first thing we must do is cut their communications. Otherwise, they'll warn the rest. Then turn off their air supplies and collapse their suits. One thing was in their favor. The spacesuits worn by the Connies were almost the same as theirs. The controls were of the same kind. The only way to know a Connie was by his bubble, which was a little more tubular than the round bubbles of the Federation. Rip suddenly realized he wasn't nervous anymore. He grinned, licking his lips. After all, this is what he'd been trained for. The Connies came abreast and passed. Let's go, Rip said, and as he rose, he heard Koa's voice. The sergeant major said, Kemp, kneel on their right side. Trudeau and I will hit them from the left and tumble them over you. Get the communicators first. Koa had methods of his own, apparently, and they sounded good. Rip started slowly. He wanted to get directly behind the Connies. He stayed down low until he was sure they couldn't see him, unless they turned. Doust and Domenico were right with him. Come on, he said, and started gliding after the helmeted figures. He kept his eyes on the one he had selected. He called on all the myriad stars of space to give him luck. If the men turned, his plan for quick victory would fail. He sensed his planeteers beside him as the figures loomed ahead. He gave a final spring that sent him through space with knees bent and out thrust, his hands reaching. His knees connected solidly with the Connie's thighs, and his hands groped around the bulky spacesuit. He felt a rheostat control and twisted savagely, then groped for the distinctive star-shaped button of the air supply. The Connie wrenched violently and threw them both upward. Rip felt the star shape and twisted. If he could only deflate the Connie's suit. But the man was writhing from his grip, clawing for a weapon. Rip stopped reaching for the deflation valve, grabbed for his knife and jerked it free, and thrust it against the middle of the Connie's back. Then he clanged his bubble against the man's helmet for direct communication and shouted, Grab some space, or I'll let vac into you. The Connie understood English. Most earthlings did. But even better was his understanding of the pressure on his back. He stopped struggling and his arms shot starward. Rip breathed freely for the first time since he had leapt. An exultation grew in him. He had his first man. His first hand-to-hand -hand fight had ended into victory so easy that he could hardly believe it. He took time to look around and saw that he was a good five feet above the asteroid. Below him, a county belt light sent his shaft parallel with the ground, and he knew the second man was down. The question was, had either of them shouted before their communicators were cut off? Doused, 
he called urgently. Everything okay? No, Dow said grimly. We got the kind, but he got the medical. Cut his leg with a space knife. I'm putting a patch on it. Are you okay? Yeah. When you can, pull me down. Right. Domenico spoke up. Don't worry about me, sir. Nothing bad. I don't lose much air. That's fine, Domenico. Glad it wasn't worse. But Rip knew it wasn't good either. A cut with a space knife let air out of the suit and created at least a partial vacuum. If it also cut flesh, the vacuum let the blood pressure force out blood and tissue to turn a minor wound into an ugly one. They would have to bring this space flap with the Connies to a quick end, Rip thought. He had to get his men into air, somehow, to take a look at their wounds. Bradshaw needed attention, and now so did Domenico. Doust reached up and took Rip's ankle and pulled him down. Rip held onto his captive. Then the private bound the Connie's hands and jerked his communicator control completely off and turned his air back on. Since Rip had been unable to collapse the unit, the Connie was comfortable enough. The reason for collapsing the suit was to deprive the enemy of air instantly so he could be tied up while helpless from lack of oxygen. There was enough air in the suit to last for a few minutes. The Connie on the ground was neatly trussed up. Rip's prisoner joined him. Dow switched off his belt light. Now what, sir? Domenico was standing patiently by. He said nothing. Rip knew that no more could be done for the Italian at present. Go back to the cave, Domenico, he ordered. I can stay with you, sir. No, Domenico. Thanks for the offer, but we'll get along. Go back to the cave. Yes, sir. Rip was a little worried. He'd heard nothing from Coa since the first exchange. He told Doust as much. Coa himself heard and answered. Lieutenant, we're all right. Got two Connies, and I don't think they had a chance to yell. But I'm sorry about one, sir. Kemp had to swing him and busted his bubble. Was it fatal? No, we got a patch on the time. But worse than Bradshaw. That's too bad. Rip couldn't feel too sympathetic. After all, it was the Connie Cruiser's fault Bradshaw had felt high vac. All right, we have four. That leaves nine. Santos came on the circuit. Sir, this is Santos. Only three men are at the snapper boats. If you could get here without being seen, maybe we could knock them off. The rest wouldn't be much good if we had their boats. You're right, Santos, Rip replied instantly. Why hadn't he seen that himself? He knew how he and Douse could approach the craters without being spotted, now that they had removed two teams of Connies. We're on our way. Koa, make it if you can. Yes, sir. Domenico was already making his way back to the cave. Rip and Doust started for the horizon at a good walk, not afraid now to use their lights, at least for a few yards. If any of the remaining Connie's search team saw the lights, they would think it was two of their own men. Rip remembered the lay of the ground and Santos's description of the snapper boat's position. He circled almost to the horizon, then told Doust to cut his light. He caught his own. In a moment, they topped the horizon, and standing with only helmets visible from the snapper boats, looked the situation over. The three Connies were standing between him and the boats. To the left of the boats was the second crater. Rip studied the ground as best he could in the Connie belt lights and decided on a plan of action. Calling to Doust, he circled again. Presently, they were approaching the crater. The Connies were about 25 yards from the crater's opposite rim. Rip said, I hate to do this, Doust, but I can't see any other way. 
We have to go out into the crater, Doust merely said. Yes, sir. The extra radiation might put both of them well over the safety limits long before Earth was reached, and they both knew it. Rip didn't hesitate. He reached the crater's edge and walked right down into it. They were out of sight of the Connies now. Rip walked up the other side of the crater until his bubble was just below ground level. The chunks of thorium he had ordered thrown in to block some of the radiation made walking a little difficult. Santos, he said, we're in the second crater. Sir, I'm beyond the first between two crystals. Peterson is near to you somewhere. Good. When I give the word, turn up your helmet light until they can see a pretty good glow. Keep watching them. The bubbles were equipped with lights, but they were seldom used. He outlined his plan swiftly. Both Santos and Doust acknowledged. Koa reported in. We're after two more commies near the wreck of the landing boat, sir. Be careful. Peterson, go help Koa. Nunez, how are things at the cave? Nunez reporting, sir. Two commies inside, but they haven't seen us yet. Let me know when they spot the cave. Yes, sir. Santos, go ahead. For long moments there was silence. Rip felt a solid foothold, found one, and flexed his knees. He kept his back straight and his eyes on the crater rim. His hands were occupied with two air bottles taken from his belt, and his thumbs were on their valve releases. He waited patiently for a word from Santos that his helmet glow had been seen. Santos yelled, No! Rip's legs straightened with a mighty thrust. He flashed into space head first at an angle that took him over the crater's rim and fifty feet above the ground. He caught a glimpse of Santos's helmet glowing like a pink balloon and of the three Connies facing it, one with gun upraised. Rip's arms flashed above his head, his thumbs compressed. Air spurted from the bottles, driving him downward, feet first, directly at the heads of the Connies. Chapter 10 Get the Scorpion From the corner of his eye, Rip saw Douse's heavy space boots and knew the private was right with him. As they drove down, one of the Connies stepped a little distance away from the others, probably to get a better look at Santos. The Connie sensed something and turned, just as Rip and Doust flashed downward on his two mates. Rip's boots caught one of the Connies where his bubble joined his suit, and the impact drove the man downward to the unyielding surface of the asteroid with a soundless smash. Rip threw up his arms to cushion his helmet as he struck the ground beyond his enemy. He threw the air bottles away. He fought to keep his feet under him and almost succeeded, but his knees hit the ground and pistol and knife bit into them painfully. Two figures came into his view, locked tightly together, arms flailing. It was doused in the second Connie. He got to his feet and was moving to the planeteer's aid when Santos's voice shrilled in his helmet. Sir, look left! Rip whirled. The Connie who had stepped aside was advancing, pistol in hand. His light caught Rip full in the face. The young officer thought quickly. The Connie hadn't fired. Why? Suddenly he had it. The man hadn't fired for fear of hitting his friend, who was battling with Doust. Rip was in front of them. Quickly, he dropped to one knee, reaching for his own pistol. The Connie wouldn't dare fire now. The high-velocity slug would go right through him to explode in one of the struggling figures behind, and the wrong one might get it. The Connie saw Rip's actions and tossed his pistol aside. He, too, knew he couldn't fire. 
He reached into a knee pouch and drew out his space knife. He leapt for the planeteer. Ripped pulled frantically at his pistol. It was stuck fast, probably caught in the fabric by his knee landing. The space knife couldn't be caught. It was smooth, with no projections to catch. He shifted knees and jerked it out. The Connie's flying body hit him, and a powerful arm circled his waist. Rip thrust upward with his knees, one hand reaching for the Connie's suit valve, but the Connie had one arm free too. He drove his glove up under Rip's heart. Rip let go of the valve and used his elbow to lever away just as the Connie pressed his knife's release valve. The blade slammed outward, drove into the inside of Rip's right arm just above the elbow. Pain lanced through him and he felt blood rush to the wound as air poured through the gap in his suit. He gritted his teeth and smashed at the Connie with his own knife. It rammed home and he squeezed the release. The blade connected solidly. He was suddenly free. He pressed the wounded arm to his side, stopping the outpouring of air. The cut hurt like all the devils of space. With his other hand, he increased the air to his suit, then looked swiftly around. The Connie was on his knees. Both gloves pressed tightly to his side. Doust was just finishing a knot in the safety line that bound a second enemy's hands. The Connie Rip had rocketed down on was still lying where he had fallen, and Corporal Santos was standing guard, the enemy's pneumatic chatter gun at ready. Rip turned up the volume on his communicator. He tried to sound calm, but the shakiness of triumph and excitement was in his voice. All planeteers, we have the Connie snapper boats. Koa, bring your men here. He felt someone working on his arm and turned to see Corporal Peterson, his face one vast grin and the glare from Douse's belt light. Koa didn't need me, he said. Rip grinned back. Nunez, he called. How are things at the cave? Sir, this is Nunez. Two guys were prowling around, but they didn't see the entrance. Then a minute ago, they turned and went away. Rip considered. Koa, how many Connies have you? Four, sir. With the five he and Doust had taken, that meant that there were still four at large, and from Nunez's report, some Connie yelling had been going on. The four certainly knew by this time there were Federal men on the asteroid. Unless something was done quickly, the four Connies would be shooting at them from the darkness. He ordered, All planeteers, kill your belt lights. The lights on the Connies they had just taken still glowed. Doust was putting a patch on the Connie, Rip had stabbed. He waited until the private had finished, then said, Turn out the Connie lights, too. If he can get in touch with the Connies, he could tell them they were finished, but using the snapper boat radios was out because the enemy cruiser would hear it. The cruiser couldn't hear the helmet communicators, though, because they carried only a short distance. The cruiser was close enough so that a helmet communicator turned on full volume might be barely heard, although that was unlikely. He couldn't stick his head in a Connie helmet, but he could talk to a Connie by direct communication and have him give instructions. There was complete darkness with all the belt lights out, but he groped his way to the Connie Doust had been patching, felt for his helmet, and put his own against it, and he yelled, Do you hear me? Yes. Then, why did you patch me? It was a perfect opening. Because we don't want to kill you. Listen. We have all but four of you. Do you understand? Yes. What will you do with us? Treat you as prisoners if you behave. Get on your communicator and tell those four men to surrender. Tell them to come to the boats with lights on. 
Tell them we'll give them five minutes. If they don't come, we'll hunt them down with rockets. They will come, the Connie said. They don't want to die. I will do it. Rip kept his helmet against the Connie's, but the man spoke in another language, which Rip identified as the main Consop's tongue. When he had finished, Rip told his planeteers to have weapons ready and to keep lights off. Time enough for light when the Connies were all disarmed. It didn't take five minutes. The Connie teams came quickly and willingly, and they seemed almost glad to give up their pistols and knives. This was not unusual. Rip had seen many planeteer reports that spoke of the same thing. Many Connies, it seemed, were glad to get away from the Iron Consop's rule, even if it meant becoming Federation prisoners. Inside one of the snapper boats, a light glowed. Rip put his helmet against that of the man who had given the surrender order and demanded, What's that light? The cruiser wants us. Rip considered demanding that the Connie answer, then thought better of it. He would do it himself. After all, they had hostages. The cruiser wouldn't take any further action. He climbed into the snapper boat and hunted for the plug-in terminal. It fitted his own belt jack. He plugged in and said, Go ahead. There was instant silence. Then an accented voice demanded, Why are you speaking English? Rip replied formally, This is Lieutenant Foster, Federation Special Order Squadrons, in charge on the asteroid. Your landing party is in our hands as prisoners. Two wounded, none dead. If you agree to withdraw, we will send the wounded men back to you on one boat. The rest will remain here as hostages for your good behavior. Stand by, the voice said. There was silence for several moments, then a new voice said, This is the cruiser commander. We make counteroffer. If you release our men and surrender to them, we will spare the lives of you and your men. Rip listened incredulously. The commanding officer didn't understand. He, Rip, held the whip hand because the lives of the county prisoners were in his own grasp. He repeated what he had said before. And I repeat, the commander retorted. Surrender or die! Choose now! I refuse, Rip stated flatly. Try anything and your men will suffer, not us. You are mistaken, the harsh voice said. We will sweep the asteroid clean with our exhaust, but this time we will be more thorough. When we are finished, we will hammer you with guided missiles. Then we send snapper boats with rockets to hunt down any who remain. We intend to have this storium. You had better surrender. Rip couldn't believe it. The cruiser commander had no hesitation in sacrificing his own men. But it wasn't a bluff. He knew instinctively that the Connie commander meant it. Instantly, he unplugged the radio connection from his belt and spoke urgently. Koa, get everyone undercover into the cave. Hurry up. Collect all the Connies and take them with you. Then he plugged in again. Commander, I must have time to think this over. You have one minute! He watched his chronometer, planning the next move. When the minute ended, he asked, Commander, how do we know you will spare our lives if we surrender? Through the transparent shell of the snapper boat, he saw lights moving toward the horizon, and he knew Koa was following orders. You don't know! You must take our word for it! If you surrender, 
We have no reason to wish to harm you. Rip remained silent. The seconds ticked past until the commander snapped. Quickly! You have no more time! Sir, Rip said plaintively, two of my men do not wish to surrender. Shoot sure, them, you fool! Are you in command or not? Rip grinned. He made his voice whine. But, sir, it's against the law of the Federation to shoot your own men without a trial. The commander lapsed into his own language, caught himself, then barked. You are no longer under Federation law. You are under the consolidation of people's government. Do you surrender or not? Answer at once, or we take action anywhere. Quickly! Rip knew he couldn't stall any longer. He said coolly, If you had brains in your head instead of high vacuum, you'd know that planeteers never surrender. Blast away, you filthy space pirate. He jerked the plug loose hesitated for a second over whether or not to take the snapper boat and decided against it. He wasn't familiar with Connie controls and there wasn't time to experiment. He headed for the cave as fast as he could glide. The Connie cruiser lost no time. Its stern tubes flamed, then its steering tubes. It was going to drive directly at the asteroid without making any long run. Rip estimated quickly and realized that the Connie would get to the asteroid at the same time that he reached the cave if he made it. He sped up as fast as he dared. With little gravity in the asteroid, he couldn't fall, but a false step could lift him into space and make him lose time while he got on an air bottle to propel himself back downward again. The thought gave him an idea. Without slowing, he took two bottles from his belt and turned them so the openings were to his rear and squeezed the release valves. The Connie was gaining speed, blasting straight toward him, Rip sped forward and crossed to the sun side, intent on the cave entrance, but no longer sure he'd make it. The Connie's nose tube shot a cylinder of flame forward, reaching for the asteroid. He saw the fire lick downward and sweep toward him with appalling speed as he put everything he had into a frantic dive for the cave entrance. The flaming rocket exhaust seemed to snatch at him as a dozen hands pulled him to safety, then beat the sparks from his suit. He was safe. He leaned against Koa, his heart thumping wildly. For a moment or two, he couldn't speak, and then he managed. Thanks. Koa spoke for the planeteers. We're the ones to say thanks, sir. If you hadn't thought of stalling the cruiser, if you hadn't stayed behind to give us time, we'd have some casualties. So would the Connors be captured. There wasn't anything else I could do, Rip replied. Come on, Koa. Let's see what the cruiser is doing. They stepped outside. The metal was already cold again. Things didn't stay hot in the vacuum of space. They didn't see the Connie until the fire of its exhaust suddenly blasted above the horizon. They ducked for cover. The cruiser had taken a swing at the other side of the asteroid. They peered out again and saw it making a turn to come back. He won't get us, Rip said confidently. Our tough time will come when he sends a fleet of snapper boats. We'll get a few, Cole replied grimly. Wait, what's he doing? The cruiser had started for the asteroid. Suddenly, jets flamed from every quarter of the ship. He was using all steering jets at once. Rip watched bewildered as the great ship spun slowly, advanced, then settled to a stop just at the horizon. He can't be launching boats already, 
What's he up to? They ran forward a short distance until they could see below the cave's horizon line. The cruiser released exhaust from both sides of the ship, the outer ones the slightest bit stronger. Rip exclaimed, Great cosmos! He's cuddling right up to the asteroid! Why? Hiding, Koa said. By Gemini, come on, sir. Rip saw his meaning instantly, and they raced to the side of the asteroid, away from the ship. As they crossed into the dark half, Rip looked back. He couldn't see the cruiser from here, but he looked out into space across the horizon and knew that Koa's guess had been right. The distinctive glow of a nuclear-drive cruiser was clear among the stars. The Scorpius had returned. The Connie saw it, Rip said wordly, but didn't blast away. That means he's intending to ambush the Scorpius. Koa, if he does that, that means that there's going to be a war. The big Hawaiian shook his head. Sir, the Connie has guided missiles with atomic warheads, just like our ship does. If he can launch one from ambush and hit our ship, that's the end of it. The Scorpius will be nothing but space junk. Commander O'Brien will never have had time to send off a message, because he'll be dead before he knows there's any danger. The logic of it sent chill fear down Rip's spine. The Connie could get the Scorpius with one nuclear blast, and then clean up the asteroid at leisure. The Federation would suspect, but it would be unable to prove anything, because there'd be no witnesses. If the Connie took time to tow the remains of the Scorpius deep into the asteroid belt, it was likely it would never be found, no matter how the Federation searched. They had to warn the ship, but how? Their helmet communicators wouldn't reach it until it was right at the asteroid, and that would be too late. They had no other radio. If only the radios in the snapper boats were on a Federation frequency, then... Wait! They could take one of the boats and intercept the cruiser. He was hurrying toward them before Koa could understand what he was thinking. He tried to make his legs go faster, but they were unsteady. He knew he was losing blood. He had lost plenty already. He gritted his teeth and kept going. The snapper boats seemed miles away to rip, but he plugged ahead until his belt light picked them up. He took a long look, then turned away. Heartsick. The Connie's exhaust had charred them into wreckage. Now what? he asked. I don't know, sir, Koa answered somberly. They went back to the cave, not hurrying because Rip no longer had the strength to hurry. Weakness and a deep desire to sleep almost overcame him, and he knew that he was finished anyway. His wound must be too deep to clot, which meant it would bleed until he bled to death. Whether he warned the Scorpius or not, his end was the same. Back in the cave, he leaned against the wall and asked tiredly, How's Domenico? I'm fine, sir. My wound stopped bleeding. How's the Connie I got? Unconscious, sir, Santos replied. He must be bleeding badly, but we can't tell. The one you landed on is all right now, but he may have a broken rib or two. Because his voice was weak, Rip had to turn up the volume on his communicator to tell the planeteers about the Scorpius. They were silent when he finished, and then Dow spoke up. Looks like they have us, sir, but we'll take plenty of them with us before we're finished. That's the spirit, Rip approved. He told them, I won't last much longer. When I get too weak, Cole will take over. Meanwhile, I want to get outside. 
Bring the rocket launcher outside, too. Who's the gunner? Santos? Stand by. We'll need you in case the Connie decides to send a few snappers before it goes after the Scorpius. The cruiser's glow was plain above the horizon. It was so close they could make out its form against the background of stars. O'Brien was decelerating and Rip was certain he was watching his screens for sign of the enemy. He would see nothing because the enemy was in the shadow of the asteroid. He would think the coast was clear and come to a stop nearby while he asked why Rip had called for help. Failing to get a reply, since the landing boat was wrecked, he would send a landing party and the Connie would attack while he was launching boats off guard. Rip watched the prediction come true. The nuclear cruiser slowed gradually, its great bulk nearing the asteroid. O'Brien was operating as expected. Rip was having trouble keeping his vision from blurring. He leaned against the rocket launcher and his glove caressed one of the sharp noses in the rack. He heard his own voice before the idea had even taken full form. Santos! Do you hear me, Santos? Get the Scorpius! Fire before it comes to a stop, and don't miss. Santos started to protest, but Koa bellowed, Do it! The lieutenant's right. It's the only chance we've got to warn the ship. Get that scorpion, Santos. Dead amidship. The Filipino corporal swung into action. His space gloves flew as he cranked the launcher around, turned on the illuminated sight, and bent low over it. Rip stood behind the corporal. He saw the cruiser's shape stand out in the glow of the sight, saw the sighting rings move as Santos corrected for its speed. The corporal fired. Fire flared back past his shoulder. The rocket flashed away, its trail dwindling as it sped toward the great bulk above. It reached Brenschluss, and then there was darkness. Rip held his breath for long seconds. Then he gave a weak cry of victory. A blossom of orange fire marked a perfect hit.